it's Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. This is podcast number 140. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she's the best. She's, the, she's with us uh, back again as the mysterious one, Bliss Young. Hi, Bliss. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Uh, you can find us on uh, iTunes. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us at drstuespodcast.com. You can find me at askdrstu at gmail.com or on Instagram at birthing instincts. You can find Bliss at, do you know that one? Um, my bed, <laughs> birthingbliss.com. That's everything, right? That's your email too? Everything is birthingbliss.com. Yeah, they can contact me through there or right. uh, Birthing Bliss Midwifery on uh, social media. Uh, John, do you know what podcast number this is? <laughs> you were really? 148. Say, you were really asking me. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> I don't come for I blank out. I blank out on stuff. I just come open to receive whatever you're throwing out. I don't come prepared she doesn't come prepared i'm prepared <laughs> no i know you're prepared you're always prepared well this happens to me every time i eat something I, uh, my mind goes blank afterwards it's sort of like i have postprandial dementia really is there such a thing as postprandial dementia <laughs> you just invented it every time you eat you yeah all out? the blood goes to my gut and it goes away from my brain and i can't remember how stuff. long is this been and i want to take a nap oh it's been going on for about 30 40 years i think <laughs> So guess what? I just had I just had lunch with a, I just had lunch with an integrative pediatrician. Oh, the one here. Yeah, the local yeah, one here. He cool? He's very cool. Mm -hmm. He reminds me of me, except that he he's already advanced to where I was am now, but he's only in his thirties. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And he, you know, he has a lot of the skeptic same skepticisms that I have, but I think he has more of an optimistic tone that he thinks that eventually things will change. They'll Why be reached. Little clinical mass. Well, we're gonna have him on the podcast. Oh, you want to give I, him a shout out now? I invited him on. Well, if we talk about what we said, I don't want him to be responsible just say, for it. Just say his name. Uh, Dr. Joel Warsh. Yeah. And he's local in California. In he's in, stu North he's in Studio City. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, literally, uh, he's about eight minutes, seven minutes from my new house, my new apartment. That's cool. And only three minutes from the studio. That's awesome. It's really cool. He also <laughs> I really like living here. I really like this area now. Yay. It's been really good. I want to hear more about that, but I also want to say about him, he also does home visits, which yes. is really nice, and they're not crazy expensive. Um, so For our local listeners. And yeah, he also yeah. he also has uh, uh, great people in his office. I mean, he has a, home a homeopathic uh, or naturopathic mm -hmm. doctor in his office who also does cranial sacral therapy. He's, he's got, I think, an acupuncturist in his office. He's got, it's an integrative pediatric thing. You should look him up, Joel uh, Warsh. And we'll have, we'll have him on because yeah, he's got some great... Him. Um, ideas, not just because they're similar to mine, but mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, he, you know, he's frustrated. He's frustrated beyond belief with what's going on with the vaccine stuff. So, I bet. Well, we're, really not gonna, we're not going to we're not going to try to we're going to try to avoid that today because there's so much going on in California right now. Uh, it's all really heating up this week. Uh, hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, some things will be settled. But uh, it's uh, looking more totalitarian every day. Yep. Yep. Local midwife uh, is moving. So that's sad. A local midwife's moving? Mm -hmm. Nancy Pohl. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah, she's out. They're going to Arizona. Yeah, she's an Instagram it. phenomenon. She's good. She posts like crazy on Instagram. She's amazing. She's yeah. going where? Arizona? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, for that reason? For that reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, um, she had a child who had an injury, and the doctor didn't write it down properly or just covered it up or whatever. And then, um, so now, you know, they can't get an exemption at all. So. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, one of one of our favorite patients, she was uh, who was on the podcast a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, 
is either up in Sacramento today or dealing with some stuff. And she emailed me a story or emailed, texted me a st- brief story about a woman who, whose baby had 21 hours after got vaccinated, had this severe cardiac reaction, ended up, the mother actually caught it. They ended up saving the baby. And of course, no one relates that to the fact that she had vaccines 21 hours before. But the, but the baby's, the child is due for its next set of vaccines. And so the doctor suggested that the next set of vaccines be done in the emergency room. Wow. But it's not the vaccines that caused it. Right. Or maybe don't do them. No, no, no. It's not the vaccines that caused the heart problem, but you're going to next set of vaccines you should do in the emergency room. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. Does that make any sense to you? None. Right. Absolutely. So that actually fits right in with everything that's going on is because none of it makes any sense. Right. Right. So what was I, that California silliness? That's what we did that last. That was our last podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. It, we could do it. We really, we really could. I could probably do a daily podcast about the stuff that goes on in the state, but it would some of it obviously doesn't relate to our profession and our listeners' interests. Yeah. So, any births? I did. I did. Anything, anything you want to share? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know her. She came to see you for post-dates testing. Yes. And um, first-time mom, uh, early 20s, and I kind of expected, you know, she'd have the normal first-time mom a progression of labor and um she uh had her bag rupture at 5 a.m she had not slept that night for other reasons which i won't discuss and um so her bag broke at 5 a.m really no contractions so i you know said why don't you take some benadryl and try and sleep it was a day just daytime so i didn't think that she was gonna you know go into labor till that night <clears throat> and then uh, i checked in with her partner 7 a.m. She was sleeping. 7.30, he texted me and said, well, she's having some contractions because she's moaning in between. And I was like, okay. 30 minutes later, I can hear her moaning in the background. He calls again and says she's asking for pain medication. So At I, home. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I said, no, there's really nothing that we can do like that unless you wanted to go into the hospital. And, you know, and she said, can I take Benadryl? And I said, yeah, to sleep, but it's not going to really help take away the pain. And So I encouraged him to send me a screenshot of what was happening with the contractions. He did. Everything was under a minute. Like most of them are like 30 seconds long, Um, you know, kind of all over the place, normal early labor pattern. Um, About 20 minutes later, he calls back and says she's feeling pushy. And they're about 40 minutes away from me. And I really didn't in my mind think that. It's possible, right? You know, I thought she's just miss interpreting something maybe she's feeling like her bowels are full and and no bloody show or anything Uh -uh. no bloody show or anything so um but i said you know i I have to go so i got in the car um pretty soon after that a few minutes after that and it was a 40 minute drive and 20 minutes into my drive he calls me and says bliss her vagina's bulging i think the baby's coming and i was like okay i'll stay on the phone with you two minutes later he puts down the phone and i can hear the baby crying I'm still 20 minutes away. <laughs> so I said, let me hang up and tell the rest of the team that the baby's born so that they don't rush. And I'll call you right back. So I call back and I, you know, I'm trying to like, I, t- I told him before I hung up, like put a blanket on the baby, just make sure she's comfortable. Maybe don't get up because she was in the tub with no water. Like she had been in the shower and um, just hang out. I was hoping that I would get there before the placenta delivered. I asked him about bleeding. He said there was some blood, but didn't seem concerning. Um, not five minutes or so, maybe 10 minutes go by five, I think. And, um, 
the placenta, he said, I think the placenta's out. I think it's on her foot. And so I said, okay, how's the bleeding? There's a lot of blood. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, you know, you've never seen a birth before. It looks like a lot of blood. And he said, she's feeling like she's going to pass out. And I said, hang up right now. Call 911. I'm on my way. And I'm hauling ass, right? So, so that means you're going like six miles an hour instead of five? Is that what that <laughs> no, means? No, I was really hauling ass. Um, <laughs> it's and, Los Angeles. That and um, that. I think by the time that happened, I was about 10 minutes away. And when I got off the freeway, I was heading towards their street and I could see the paramedics coming from the opposite direction, turning onto their street. So we basically arrived at the same time. And I pull up. They asked me to back up my car so that they can get the gurney. And I said, I'm the midwife. And I could hear one of the paramedics saying, yeah, you're a little late. And I was like, the baby came fast, you know. And so I run upstairs to see if I can, like, assess her bleeding and, like, maybe do something to help them be able to stay home. Because right. sometimes we call the paramedics yeah, and they're not needed, right? So I get in there and um, get the baby and the placenta out and hand it to dad. Um, this is an African American couple, and I think he was very nervous about having seven white uniformed guys in his house. So he went into the bedroom and shut the door with the baby, and that made them nervous because now they can't assess what's happening with the baby, but they've been called. And so I'm trying to like feel her fundus and check for bleeding and like see if we're okay. No bleeding's happening, but she does seem really like shocky, like like she might pass out. So now I'm having to deal with the placenta and the baby and the dad assuring him and talking to the paramedics that, like, they're not going to take your baby. I promise no one's going to take your baby, right? You're not going to take his baby without his permission. They're like, yeah. I'm like, they just want to check out the baby. Baby was great. Ends up being nine pounds, nine ounces, first time mom. Um, I think we thought that, though, didn't we? I think you said nine. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so anyways, baby's great. We get her on the couch. They take her blood pressure. It's 80 over 40. And so I was like, we need to go. They had already talked about calling the police department because he had been so evasive. And I was like, let's just get them to the hospital and get out of this situation. Because if I had like pressured for them to stay and tried to get a, you know, whatever. It just, I had a feeling it was going to get worse. So we went to the hospital. By the time she got there, she was totally stable, yeah. totally fine. I, w I won't go on because I know we have a lovely guest today, but something very interesting that I would like to say is that nobody checked her bottom. And it was several hours later. I wanted to get her up to go to the bathroom and all of that before they released her. And I wanted to check her bottom. And I checked and she had a third degree tear. Um, so I was kind of surprised that nobody checked. And then there was a whole thing about who, to, who was going to sew it for her. And finally they got an OB to come down and check it. And he said to her, which I was shocked about. He said, um, you know, you could have this sutured or you could go home and if and if it's bothering you, you could come back another day and have it have it taken care of. He said that. For a third degree tear. Yeah. And um and I and she looked at me and she's like, What do you think? Because she really wanted to go home. And I said, I would definitely take care of this today because if you have to come back, they're gonna have to reopen this and then, you know, have surgery. So I would definitely handle it today. That's an odd thing to say because you really, you know, days out, it's really not a good idea to re-repair or, re or redo I have never, things. ever heard someone recommend to somebody not to have a third degree repaired. So it, it leads me to believe it was because she was black. That's, or she was just an ER hit. That's my assumption. He was an OB, a very skilled yeah, OB. Yeah, but still, I'm just saying, you know, just an ER hit. You didn't want to deal with it, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, but, but you know what? You're 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 probably you know you're possibly not wrong. It's I mean, it's kind we, of we do have yeah. that 
problem. Yeah. So, so they sewed her up. They made, they wouldn't let me in the room once they went up to L and D. Uh, they were like, "No, you're not welcome." Oh, it's a shame so. that she went so fast because if you were there, you pr- she probably would have had no tear or just a small tear. I hope, yeah. But it what are you was meant do? to be. What are you going to do? That baby right? wanted to come. What are you going to do? Right. right. <laughs> so that was exciting. You're a little late. <laughs> I love that comment. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Those paramedics, guys. Oh, my God. It was All right. Well, all right. So uh, just real quickly, um, uh, since the last podcast, well, I've had two sets of twins. Mm-hmm. And uh, one was uh, a woman who sort of had 10 days earlier threatened to be in labor and got to six to seven centimeters. And her labor stopped. Was this the one I was supposed to come to? No. Oh, okay. That's the one you're supposed to come That's to. That's the one we're going to talk about more. Right. Okay. No, at six to seven centimeters, and her labor stopped. And so we sent her home. She was at birth center birth, and we sent her home. Mm-hmm. And then over the next five, six, seven days, she'd had repeated episodes of contractions in the evening, but never had any bloody show, never had anything. And uh, more than a week after that first episode, she finally went into labor and had uh, vertex breach extraction. The second twin was transverse and came down. After the first twin came out, came down, definitely just footling, feet hanging down hmm. in the bag of waters. Mm-hmm. So about 11 minutes after the first twin came out, just uh, did a classic uh, ruptured membranes, grabbed the feet, baby came out real easily, did great. Both babies had great APGARs and she did great. May I so ask a question? You have to, you always ask me that as if you can't ask a question. I don't know like if time, you know, oh, yeah, like I ahead. wanna, you might yeah. have an idea of how fast you wanna go through something. Um, so the reason why you broke the bag and did the extraction is because the feet were presenting? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There wasn't gonna change. Yeah. And there's, at that point, there's no reason to worry. You worry about the cervix closing down. You know, she, the baby's heart rate had been fine. There's no reason to do it. She's in the right position. Mm-hmm. Let's just, and the cord had stopped pulsating on A. We, you know, separated A and gave A to the dad and, and, uh, so it worked out great, but it was it was great, just like they're supposed to be. It was easy. She was she was great. She tolerated the extraction without, you know. I'm sure if you'd asked her now, she'd probably say it was yeah, it was pretty tough. But you know, she knew what was coming. We had counseled her. We had educated her beforehand. Yeah. I sort of thought the baby was going to come down that way, just by the way it was lying in the uterus, mm-hmm. and uh, we were hoping it would come down head down. But it just it it was great. It was and it was great having the ultrasound there because I could take a look and I could see that the it wasn't even a complete breach or anything. It was just. Standing, it was basically standing there. Yeah. The second set of twins yeah. uh, is going to lead us into our guest today. So I'm not going to get into it too much, excited. but this was a set of twins. She was uh, 37 and a half, I think, weeks or so. And the babies were both small, but the biophysicals were great. We mm-hmm. estimated both of them to be around five pounds. And uh, so rather than tell the story myself or get into it whatsoever, I want to uh, bring in our guest. And before I do, I want to give a little in, in, uh, introduction to him. Uh, Dr. Emiliano Chavira is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology with a subspecialty certification in maternal fetal medicine. So he is an MFM. Mm-hmm. How many of MF- MFMs are actually doing labor and delivery? I don't know that. I think he's the only statistic. one I know. Well, maybe Tabish. <laughs> I think Tabish does. He but, might know. You might know. But anyway, um, he completed his OBGYN residency. He actually did complete his OBGYN. He just wanted to make sure I told people that he completed his residency. No, oh, oh, at LAUSC Hospital in Los Angeles. He stayed on the same institution to complete his fellowship in MFM, which is also known as high-risk pregnancy. In his years as a specialist working in tertiary referral centers, he has cared for some of the most complicated and high-risk pregnancies dealing with both maternal medical issues as well as complex fetal problems. His passion is to provide objective and caring evidence to his patients with the aim of instilling knowledge, understanding, empowerment, and hope in difficult circumstances, mm. which is a blessing 
Yeah, to those he of is us in Los Angeles, right? Yes, yes, yes. In addition to caring for complicated pregnancies, he also has an interest in ethical dilemmas in modern obstetrics care, and we're going to get into some of that, particularly as related to vaginal breech birth, multiple gestations, and vaginal birth after cesarean. So I want to welcome the mellow voice of Isaac Hayes, I mean, Dr. <laughs> Milo Chavira, uh, our, our non-credentialed hypnobirthing specialist. Welcome to the Dr. Seuss podcast. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I really do enjoy hearing your voice when you do informed consent on my clients. Oh, thank you. I do. It's, it's, it's really lovely. Before you start, I'm really excited to have you here. I haven't seen you in a long time. Congratulations on the you. birth of your third daughter. Third daughter. Yeah. What's mm-hmm. her name? Her name is Valeria Rocio. Mm. Who say that again? Valeria Rocio. <laughs> Thank you, Jules. Oh my God! Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> and um, happy Father's Day to you both. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I had a great Father's Day. Yeah. Probably not as great as yours, but but a great Father's Day. Yeah, I had a fantastic Father's Day. Yeah. She was how old when when it was Father's Day? Um, let me see. I'm sort of in a blur. <laughs> two weeks. She well, she was approximately exactly two weeks. Two weeks. She was born on yeah. the third, right? Second. Oh, so two weeks in one day. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, there Stu knows exactly That's, how yeah. old your baby is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was well, going to say that, that. I want to make sure uh, and say that. Yeah. Well, you were with your three girls, and I was with my three boys. Um, my daughter was out of town. She was at a concert in San Francisco. <laughs> so, uh, but the three boys and I went and we hit golf balls in the morning, which fun. was fun. Wow, for us to I do. did the same thing. I was going to say, you hit golf I thought balls? that was yeah. you. Oh, you went to the driving range? Yeah. yeah. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, with some of the other uh, fathers in the family. No kidding. Yeah, what and fun? also one of my daughters. What fun. It was fun. And then we came mm-hmm. home and we watched part of the uh, U.S. Open golf tournament. I don't know if you watched any of that. No, I came home and watched I cried. soccer. I cried at the end of the golf tournament. You did. Yeah, I cried a lot. I love. No, I love the guy that won. The guy that won. I, I was really happy for him, and he sunk like a forty foot putt on the last hole mm. to win by three. He was already he was already going to win, but it was just sort of fitting. It was great. <laughs> it was just great. I it just was a great I love you know those those I used to watch those with my dad, and mm. so there's big memories with the four yeah. the, the four majors, yeah. the Masters, the PGA, the British Open, and the U.S. Open. How so. beautiful. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, and thank, thank you. you, and thank you for all that you do. You are a blessing to the to the women of Los Angeles. You're making me blush. Well, good. Good. Um, <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> so I want to just talk a little bit about our client. That uh, you know, I'll I'll start because then I'll then I'll just tell people that uh, she went into labor. She broke her bag of waters at about eleven thirty at night on June fifth, and um, for the next twenty four hours, she really didn't do much of anything. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, it was for 30, 30 hours or so. Then she finally started to go into labor. So we're talking about 30 hours out. She was GBS negative. That's good. And uh, the babies were stable and without fever or anything like that. Um, and she got to, essentially, after all that time, I checked her and she was one centimeter. Mm-hmm. And completely effaced. And I, I stretched her to four. Mm-hmm. And we waited a couple more hours and she was still four. And she was getting really exhausted. Mm. She was trying to keep hydrated and all that. But she was getting really exhausted. So we felt... Was Alex with you? Alex was there. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, Alex was there by this point, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided that at this point, it was the best thing to do was to get her to the hospital when she still had some energy, where the babies were still healthy, and we get it to a place where there, where there was the possibility that she could still have a vaginal birth. Because pretty much anywhere else you're going to take a transport from twins at home, no matter even though they were vertex-vertex twins uh, and concordant, they're going to end up with a C-section. Just because of prolonged rupture of membranes, they would have gone. They would have gone crazy on this p- person. So instead of driving 
Well, they lived in deep Topanga Canyon, which if people don't understand is deep Topanga Canyon. I mean, it is like in the middle. It's it was like I it, love those. Breaks. You have to hike out. You, yeah, you know, your car can get stuck. It's yeah, a real thing. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 up these windy little roads, yeah. and you're 17 minutes from either PCH or um, the 101. So you're in the really in the middle of the canyon. Yeah. And we decided rather than going to a local hospital, we would drive an hour and a half at two in the afternoon on, uh, well, I think it was a weekday still. Or no, it was a weekend. I've done that a couple of times to see you. All the way to uh, Dr. Chavira's hospital. Mm-hmm. And he was ki- kind enough because I think his, his baby was only a couple days old at the time. Yeah. And he was kind enough to take her on because he's on paternity leave. Yeah. Right, which is great. I'll talk to you about that some off the record. But, uh, and we got there. And then uh, uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell a little bit of the story? Because I just tell your initial impressions and what your plan was. And then I've got things to ask you because some things happened there that, that I think are amazing that she ended up with this result that she ended up with. Yeah. You, you know, <clears throat> it's interesting. So many... Um, um, patients that I take care of, I use the word patients. Um, I'm just meeting for the first time. It ha- happens to me all the time by the nature of what I do. So I, I don't really know these people the way you know them. You get to know them intimately. But she showed up, I think, about 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, basically, everything seemed fine. Um, she seemed to be in reasonable spirits, just looked kind of tired. And was requesting epidural, so that was the first thing we did. And <laughs> uh, I told her we wouldn't talk about much of anything at first. We kind of just get her comfortable, and then you know go from there. How so, long did that take? Um, it took longer than I would have liked, and probably longer than she, she would have liked. liked. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this interesting about this interesting thing about the hospital that um, the process of an of an admission and an evaluation and all the documentation and all the everything is so time consuming it it makes you want to like smash your face in with a mallet it's so frustrating mm-hmm. on on the other hand if if somebody comes in with a true emergency like things can be done in the drop of a hat but yeah. you know she she really had no specific emergency going on so i think the epidural took about an hour by the time she got it and yeah, which I, which I with with my student who was from New York, uh, not a student, a midwife who's visiting from New York, and I told her it would probably take an hour to an hour and twenty minutes to get the epidural. That was my guess, you know, not not having been at your hospital that often. But and she said, "Oh, it's that fast." Yeah, that's not that's actually not that bad. <laughs> so yeah. because yeah, in, and she bad. says in New York it takes at least where she transports to it takes longer. Wow. Um, but you know they have to. They, you can't do anything until they're admitted and sign documents, and then they have to get a wristband because they can't draw blood until they have a wristband, and they can't do an IV or anything, any, give any medication or epidural until they have the blood work back. And so, well, they can start the IV, but they can't really do anything. And then they, have, of course, have to go through. Since she's never been there before, not pre-admitted, she have, they have to go through that whole long list of questions that are on the EMR system that they have right. to fill in all the blanks and stuff like that. So. It, it takes time. Meanwhile, she's contracting, but they had spaced out a little bit. But I think they're still every four to five minutes, I think. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I, I, I side, sidebarred a little bit. Oh, there's going to be lots yeah. of sidebars. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, be ever, don't ever be sorry. So she got, she got her epidural, and um, she was better, although she, she looked a lot more comfortable afterward, although she told me she was still kind of feeling stuff. And um, uh, it, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but eventually that epidural had to be replaced. Uh, which doesn't happen often, but 
maybe something like 2% of the time an epidural just doesn't work and you know needs to be replaced. So they take it out and redo <clears throat> the whole thing. Yeah, they take uh-huh. it out and redo the zone. Mm-hmm. Do they go into a, a, a different interspace when they do the second again? Or you don't uh, know? Yeah, they do. They do, okay. Yeah. Because usually they do like L4, L5 or right. something like that? Okay. Yeah. Um, so we, we basically talked about uh, the options and you know one option was just to keep waiting and do nothing and see if she'd labor and then the other option was to augment her and um i favored augmenting her uh because you know natural labor you never know what's going to happen right that could be four hours ten hours two days three days i mean you just told already been two right you just told this incredible story oh seven days of somebody who went the seven to ten days or whatever it was after being six seven centimeters so you you never know how long it's going to be now she's got an epidural, which means she's bedridden, and you know she's got a fully. There's a minor clock. Bladder. There's a minor clock ticking on her too. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not. There's no you know real kind of specific time limits, but it's. Uh, I'll say seven days would be too. You know, <laughs> well, too long. Well, I would say that you don't think there's a specific time limit, but here's a woman who's been there ruptured. Who's been ruptured now for about forty hours. All right. You don't think there's a time limit, but how many of our colleagues would think that that's a time limit? Sure, absolutely, yeah. I, I think I've called you before and been like, so what's your limit for this? Because I know I might be rolling in and you're, you've been very patient with my clients. And yeah, I, I really can't give a number like that because yeah, you know care is individualized. It depends on the circumstances. It, someone might walk in the door and I might want them delivered that second depending on what's going on. But you know, she was perfectly stable really with nothing bad happening yeah appreciate that about you except she had small twins and she's over 35 right and, and yeah for, no i'm just i'm just uh the normal i'm being the uh the, the antagonist yeah okay yeah um so we we talked about it and uh so she and her partner decided they they felt like it made sense to go ahead and start augmenting which you know which we did and uh, the other thing is looking at her labor pattern. She still seemed to be kind of in an early labor pattern, you know, with the contractions irregular and so forth. So I, I, it's, it would have been different if she had looked really active. I, I might have said, why don't we just give it some time and see yeah. where this goes. But She was four now or no? I didn't recheck her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because she had been ruptured. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And it sounded like she had already had a few exams at home. And makes so, sense. Yeah. So I, I just assumed she would be something similar to you know, what she was prior to, to leaving her house. She wasn't ready to have her babies. Right. No, right. she didn't have the magic car ride that, that occurs sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and she didn't have whatever you gave your other patient that made her deliver in on your way there. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so uh, we, we started augmenting her, I think, around 6 in the evening. And, um, you know, it was not the most tumultuous labor that I've seen, but it also was not smooth sailing the the baby did have a lot of d cells mm. there was we're uh, talking baby a now baby right? a right yeah and there was real thick uh meconium in the amniotic fluid which wasn't there at home the fluid was clear when she ruptured it yeah so this presumably was a new development mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah uh at some point she also developed a fever um so we started on antibiotics for that um I think that was around the time we did her first exams, about 9 p.m. She was like six centimeters at that time. And uh, starting to have a more regular pattern, you know, from the, uh, from the Pitocin. And basically, she continued 
progressing and we you know kept working on the fetal heart tracing i ended up doing a, an amnio infusion on, um, on a2 on a oh you did a because um i think you also might have well we'll get to it but yeah now, and now that i'm i'm not sure if it was on a or b but i, I think, think it was, was on a. b no i think it was uh, i think if i remember the story correctly but yeah matt, you know matt might have got it wrong so yeah well, you might be right. Um, was that because of the tracing that you wanted to do the amnio infusion? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was having uh, recurrent variable D cells and going on for a while, and um, so we did that. And it basically, the the you know while there were these issues going on, she was making progress. And the basic thing that I need to see in the fetal heart tracing is moderate variability, and that was always present. So we just kept going. Did the amnio infusion help? With the tracing at all? Well, it helped with the tracing. It did. Yeah. Okay. Wait, wait, wait what? Did it not help with something else? <laughs> um, the, I, I mean, the, <laughs> you should see the smirk on his face when he said that. I mean, I wish my <laughs> listeners could see that. Wait, 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 what were you? Th- what were you gonna? What were you keeping back there? Well, you know how much it's actually helpful for the baby is a is a question mark. I don't like them because because I have seen a baby tank and I just I I don't like them. Sorry. <laughs> well, I trust I trust once we're in the hospital that you guys, you know, have more of an expertise than I do, but you know, I've seen them done quite frequently and but, yeah. Yeah. So, but explain more about what you what you mean when you say that you don't know if it it's helped good with for the, the tracing. Baby. Well, I, what studies have shown is that it helps with the tracing and, you know, uh, I think if you're in a setting where people overreact to tracings, maybe that reduces the number of cesareans you do. But I'm I just not certain how harmful these variable D cells are. Mm. Um, I think I look at it differently than most OBs do. I mean, I think on a labor and delivery unit, it's it's something seen as inherently negative. It's not good to see decelerations. But the way I look at it is it's actually a physiologic mechanism that the baby has to protect itself during the process of labor. Because sometimes things do happen, you know, uh, the maternal blood pressure may change or the, you know, intensity of contractions, you know, reducing blood flow to the baby may happen or cord compression during labor may happen. And the baby has this mechanism to protect itself um, during childbirth to kind of keep everything, um, you know, so what hunky-dory. You're saying, what you're saying is sometimes they use... They also offered uh, amnio infusion for babies with really thick meconium too. That's been a thing that that that's been done before. I'm not sure why that's the case. I think I think what you're saying is that it's almost to placate the medical personnel more than it is to, to help the baby. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the the whole meconium thing. There were some early studies that were suggestive that it reduced meconium aspiration syndrome, but the problem was they were very poor quality studies. So the there was one done that was prospective, much better designed, much bigger, and that one actually showed no benefit yeah. in, 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 in fact, potential even harm. Um, so, you know, the concept was thin out the meconium so that... Uh, when they aspirate it, it will be thinner. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but in fact, what might be happening is you might be thinning it out and make it more possible to enter into the lung space. So things don't always work out the way you, yeah, you and, would and think that's based if you on believe, sense. That's if you believe meconium aspiration is is a process where the baby just inhales meconium as opposed to the baby having a hypoxic event and then gasping. And it, 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 it's actually the, there's a hypoxic event that occurred 
that causes the meconium mass, as opposed to just meconium being present there, which most of us believe is just, you know, as my professor once said to me, having meconium in the amniotic fluid means the baby has a, it, he used the word patent anus, but I think he used the word asshole. <laughs> But when he gave the lecture, because he got us all laughing about it. I was to say, it's funnier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it just means the baby has a working butt. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, I would love, as we have this dialogue, to distinguish the difference between effects of childbirth and effects of hospital deliveries. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean by that? I do, absolutely. But okay. what, what in specific? Well, because you said, I think the baby has this mechanism in their heart rate to deal with childbirth. Mm -hmm. And I think babies respond to things that happen at hospitals that are not necessarily associated with just childbirth. So augmenting labor, having an epidural on board, having um, their bag of waters broken not spontaneously, um, infusing their environment. Like, if you just think about it without a study or without, you know, all of that, and you just think, okay, so here's this wonderful, like, normal, like, balanced environment, and then we're, we're inserting something into their environment. If you just think about it, they're more than likely going to have a response to that because it's a change in their flora it's the change in their environment yeah i um so That's i no no i know i i i get exactly where you're okay. coming from and i think um i think one concept that most ob's and labor and delivery nurses are not very sensitive to is the fact that a lot of things we do are actually disruptive right. um, to labor and have potential side effects and that includes everything it includes right. The light, the gown, uh, you know, yeah, the 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 presence of strangers, being yeah. in an unfamiliar environment, um, the, you know, restricted food intake, restricted movement, um, the noise, the mm -hmm. I, there, you know, there's so many things that are that are, mm -hmm. um, you know, disruptive, and then, you know, to start talking about medications, right? Like this wasn't a labor that started on its own. We started, we we nudged it along with the oxytocin. Although I will say, you know, she never got. Very much. She was she was pretty easy to, to get into labor, but on the other hand, I also think it's very simplistic um, to to have a very dichotomous view where um, you know if, if anything that happens that's untoward, it's because of what was done in the hospital. So I think that would be you know taking the concept um, too far, and I'm not even sure that that's what you're. That's what you're saying. It's not. And sometimes it's hard to know. Yeah. You know, like, is this, are, is this, you know, the fever and the meconium, like, would that have happened at home without any interventions if she had gone into labor on her own? I think quite possibly. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Who knows? No, I just, I just wanted to differentiate that for, for our listeners. Yeah. And I think that this was a, a really appropriate call, given everything that you said in the beginning of the story, to go in and, and, and utilize what you had to offer. Yeah, so my, I'm not my, critiquing how it was managed. And my feeling, you know my feeling, as I've said many times on the podcast and when I teach Breach, is that uh, Breaches and Twins need to come on their own without a whole lot of messing around at home or they need to be going to the hospital. All right? mm -hmm. We don't want to augment we don't want to mess around at home if, if they don't come it's different than a head down baby where you can do certain things but but i just feel and i think that dr trevor and i have agreed on this with breaches and mm -hmm. stuff they, they need to come on their own labor needs to progress naturally mm -hmm. 
or a cesarean section or something like might be a better choice mm -hmm. than augmenting or, or pushing uh, a, a breech baby. Now, head down. If the first twin had been breech here, I'm not sure things would have been done the same, and it's not even relevant to the conversation. Mm -hmm. But we're now at 9 o'clock at night. She spiked the temperature. She's had meconium. She'd been ruptured for 40-some hours. She's had amnio infusion, maybe, if we remember correctly. And you've probably given her antibiotics. You probably gave her some Tylenol. She's right. on Pitocin. She's right. got an epidural. What physician in the country at this point wouldn't <laughs> have said, uh, let's go to the operating room and do a C-section? And I, I, I know your Who's answer. Who's on paternity I know your answer. <laughs> I know your answer, but I want you to explain your thought process because this is what people can really learn from you. Even I can learn from you, all right, about the way to compartmentalize each of these issues and not let them all be lumped together and make the, you know, tip over the apple cart, so yeah. to speak. So, go. You know, it, it's, it's very interesting that you frame the question that way because I think there's a very common sort of obstetric thinking that you start piling things on top of one another and it's almost like instead of additive, they become multiplicative, you know, yeah. like start up, you know, it, it's, it's, she's advanced maternal age, she's twins, they're small, prolonged rupture, and then you, you know, then you keep going. Now there's meconium, now there's D-cells, now there's a fever, and, and somehow, um, it, you know, the, the risk to these babies and this mother is now astronomical, and you've got to get her out this second. I think right, midwives and, and, do that too, by the way. Like when, when you see multiple things happening, I think midwives are, are more yeah, likely but, to Yeah, but I mean, in. usually a picture like this, you wouldn't have at home anyway. No, you would not. <laughs> um, I, I mean, my experience with, with midwives is uh, that when it's time to go to the hospital, that that recommendation is made, and that that's always, you know, very appropriate from what I've seen. Yeah, good. But, um, it, you know, I, I guess my thought process, I hadn't really thought about this, but my thought process is different. I, I mean, I look at each one of those items uh, separately. So, for example, her age, uh, it's, sort of, it's, it's not really, it's not it's really part of the picture anymore. Right. Um, there's, there, that sort of influences certain genetic risk in a baby, but that's been assessed. That, that question is now over and done with. And the size is um, something that, I always take with a grain of salt because uh, the accuracy of ultrasound is poor. And even if it was precise, what that means with respect to the health of the baby is kind of a question mark because if the baby's small, is that because it's just inherently natural small and it's really growing perfectly normal, normally? And in this case, actually, that... That they had been that on their that growth curve all the way through their pregnancy, and their biophysical profiles had been great in the last couple of weeks because I actually had gotten a consult uh, a consultant on board yeah. just to be sure because I that I wasn't missing anything. Yeah, and so yeah, so that was not a yeah. factor either. But you add in all the other things, right? So I, you know, I've very often heard uh, people express concerns about um, growth restricted babies being able to tolerate labor, and I've always felt that well, the baby will tell you. Yep. The baby will tell you during labor. I mean, if you know, if, if things are fine, things are fine. If there's an issue and a concern, then you confront that at the time. You know, that's why, that's why we would often recommend those people not be giving birth at home if they're really growth restricted, because at the hospital, if you if you just let them do their thing, the babies will tell you. Yeah, and, and that's the whole point of being in a hospital where you have so-called the OR down the hall. I mean, that's that's the beauty of of having that. But it's not like it again. Having somebody like Chavira there, who's looking at all these things and saying, "Well, okay, uh, the fever, I can get that down. I can give her antibiotics. That's fine. The variables, that's a natural phenomenon of the baby. The baby's baseline isn't rising. It's not flattening out. It's not looking 
you know, more like a hypoxic or that sort of thing. It's just, uh, it's got cord compression. It's something's going on. So that when the baby seems to be tolerating fine. Babies, if they have cord compression after a while, after a period of time, eventually you'll start to see a change in the, in the baseline and you'll start to see a change in the variability. But you didn't see that. Right. right. And, you know, a growth-restricted baby may have some difficulties after birth, but that really doesn't have anything to do with the labor. That's sort of a bridge that we'll cross when we get there. Uh, the same thing for the meconium. It, it used to be we had an intervention, which was uh, amnio infusion, but that was debunked by uh, you know a high quality study. So we haven't done that for many years. Uh, most um, most births where you see meconium, there's really no consequence as a result of it. You know, you see the baby's born, the baby breathes fine. It's really a minority that will have this meconium aspiration syndrome, and there's nothing you can really do about it during the labor and. Even the idea that if you do a cesarean early, it might be too late by that point. So you may do a cesarean and the baby's already aspirated meconium, and all you've really done, you haven't helped the baby, but you've just subjected the mother to a surgery. So in my mind, at this point in time, meconium is not something that has an available intervention. You just see how the baby does at the time of birth. Yep. Brilliant. And the, yeah, and then the fever, and I, I talked about all this actually with the mother. So, you know, we, we, were, we were kind of talking about the, uh, this process we're marching along. Informed consent. With respect to the fever, you know, you might think if you stay pregnant with a fever for a prolonged period of time, the, the risk that the baby is going to get infected and, and be sick as a result of this is, is escalating. But it turns out there's a study on that that looks at women who are febrile in labor for an hour, for two hours, for four hours, for eight hours, for 12 hours, and looking at the incidence of neonatal sepsis. And it doesn't really, it doesn't change. Without antibiotics? Well, no, this is, you know, treatment with treatment. antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no treated. correlation between the length of time is what he's saying. Right. right? So in, in other words, the, the second you see a fever, you don't need to run in and, and mm -hmm. get the babies out. Like mm -hmm. you can allow a normal time course of labor. Now, again, I'm not talking about three, four, five, six, seven days. I'm just talking about the several hours that a normal labor you know, would take. Mm -hmm. And at this point, she's now in active labor, she's making progress. And, and, and so that's why we continue to labor her. Okay, so in the interest of time, we're now in the evening. Yeah. She's six centimeters. You've kind yeah. of resolved most of those other problems. What happens? Well, we're working on them continuously, right? And then so by midnight, she's eight centimeters and kind of feeling submerged. So we started making preparations. Or maybe she was, uh, maybe she was almost complete. But basically, we plan to deliver in the operating room. That's just sort of the standard Policy, procedure yeah. in the hospital. Um, uh, we, um, you know, they asked if the birth team could come into the OR. And um, lately, I, you know, historically, there's always been this policy that one person uh, who's not part of the hospital staff is allowed into the operating room. And lately, I've just been asking permission on sort of incre with increasing frequency to uh, bring more people into the OR because I think one of the one of the the things that's sort of lost on uh, you know hospital policymakers and so forth is the negative impacts of fracturing the birth team and mm -hmm. the and sort of the support team. Mm -hmm. And I, for whatever reason, I'm just a little more sensitive to that. so we 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 brought um, you know her birth team into the OR. And, um, and how many people was that? Just so I can imagine. Well, it was, yeah, I was her partner, her mm -hmm. doula, mm -hmm. and the, the photographer, the photographer, and, and her husband, and and, and the midwife. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. right, right. So it was uh, it was Three. two extra bodies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Three people. <clears throat> and um, 
And actually, I mean, this is a separate story, but sometimes I've actually found members of the birth team to be to be very uh, helpful oh, sure. in certain cases. Um, so uh, basically, the, but you, the but before you go on, I just have to say that that's because you're who you are. Mm-hmm. Other doctors would find having a doula or a coach or a midwife threatening. Correct, yeah. exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, because they they know that they say things that aren't necessarily true, and they're going to get busted on it uh, if somebody in there knows what 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 they're talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, so essentially, we, you know, we, we, uh, the way we prepare in ORs, we have two teams, uh, one pediatric team for each baby. And then, uh, we're set up to do vaginal birth. We're set up to do cesarean. Um, although in this kind of setting and circumstance, I'm not really expecting to do cesarean. And we talk about that. The other thing is it's, it's roomy. That's one nice thing about the room. One thing that's awful about it is very brightly lit. The t- it's a surgical table, not a birthing bed. So all that's awful. Um, but you know, pros and cons to everything. Um, essentially, um, she was, uh, had a very dense epidural. She was very comfortable, not feeling the contractions much at all. Um, I helped coach her to tell her when to, um, uh, push, which she was able to do very effectively. And we really just had a very uneventful, um, birth of the first baby. Now, what I usually like to do is have the, um, the team that's available, hold the first baby so we get some delayed cord clamping on baby A while I start making assessments of what's going on with baby B. And so one interesting thing was this cord was extremely short. <laughs> I, I couldn't move the baby away from the perineum. And it was almost, it was awkward. Like I kept telling the NICU team, no, get in here next to me. You got to hold this baby. Um, but we, we, um, we did delayed cord clamping. I don't remember how long, several minutes. And, um, uh, the baby went off to the um, baby warmer, um, got some assessments from the NICU team. They ended up taking that baby off to the NICU for some, uh, for some grunting and you know, a little bit of labor breathing, which not surprising. There could have been multiple you know, potential explanations for that. Um, second baby basically was coming down in a cephalic presentation. The fetal heart rate was great, but it was really high station. I mean, I couldn't even feel the head from a vaginal approach. Did you and have an ultrasound in the room? I had an ultrasound, oh, okay. yeah. So that's how I knew, you know, baby was right. cephalic. And, um, but, you know, it wasn't OP. It was, it was coming down in an, in, an, in an OA type of position. And we waited for about a half an hour, and the, the situation was pretty stable. So we decided just to move back to the labor room and, and wait for the second baby. Because, you know, now we've got a singleton. There's mm-hmm. not really any reason to be in the OR anymore. That's great. Right. So let me ask a, interrupt you and ask a question. The way you and I were both trained probably would have been after baby A came out to then do what? Reach up? At least I was trained this way. Break the bag of waters on B and either have her push baby B out or do a breech extraction right. or put a vacuum just to get B out right away. Right. Part of me believes that's the way we were trained because it had been done that way and no one ever questioned it. And part of it believes that it was for convenience sake. I mean, you have two NICU teams there for when you, when you have, or at least we used to have two teams. And you have an anesthesiologist, and you have some, re- and, and, and nobody wants to sit around and wait for half hour, an hour, six hours. Yeah, I think it's a little <laughs> of all of that. There's also some some data that shows, um, you know, prolonged delivery between twins. There's there's some higher incidence of adverse outcomes on the second baby. So there's yeah, that slightly, also. Yeah, slightly more acidosis, and also slightly more likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage as well. Yeah, right. So, uh, so it's, I think it's a mix of all of those things. Um, but you didn't do that. Do you, yeah. know, do you know what we say from a midwifery perspective? No. What do you say? That that second baby is missing its twin. Oh. And that you have to like 
like help it know that it's going to be joining it soon and everything's fine. Plus its environment is different. So just from a woo woo perspective, (laughs) no science behind that. That is pretty woo woo. I know. I'm just telling you. That's advice from the cauldron. That's what we call that. Sure. I don't mind. (laughs) No. You can even call me a witch. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm a warlock. I guess. All right. So, um, so basically, uh, she went back to the labor room and, um, about an hour later she was rechecked and was five centimeters. So she went down. So the cervix had closed back down. Mm -hmm. You know, you were referring to that earlier that that can happen. Um, and, but the baby was minus two stations, so had descended somewhat. And um, How was the heart rate? The heart rate uh, initially had been totally normal, but as she started getting back into active labor, then we started seeing decelerations on, on baby B as well. And she, her uh, bag of waters ruptured spontaneously. I think she was about eight centimeters. Um, then we saw thick meconium in that bag of waters as well. Was it clear initially in the mech, or when she no. ruptured, it was, it was she ruptured. It was thick mech. Was it pea soup type mech? Yeah, or? it was really well, thick. Interesting for thirty seven and thirty seven and a half week babies to do that. Yeah, agreed. Okay, um, but she basically uh, progressed very well, and then pushed out the second baby. How far apart were they? Six hours. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, uh, that's pretty miraculous. It is. Can yeah. I applaud? Let's have an it's, applause. <laughs> I will say that is a record for me. Prior to that, it, it had been five hours. Wow! Yeah. Thank you for the work you do. Yeah, there was a there was a funny story. I was I was uh, you know walking the halls uh, in between the babies, and and I passed by uh, a nurse who was not involved in this particular case, and. <laughs> so, excuse me. You know what happens on L and D is everybody knows what's going on, especially if there's you know something unusual. Oh, there. for sure. It's mm-hmm. all the gossip and the. Uh, so this nurse uh, asked me, "Is that second baby come yet?" I said, "No, not yet. She's just in labor and we're waiting." And she shook her head and says, "Doc, I got to tell you this. I've never seen anything like this before. This is new and on me." And it it kind of surprised me because, I mean, all the elements are things that we see every... I mean, we see D-cells every day. We see meconium every day. We see fevers every day. Like, none of it is really unusual. But but, but what's unusual... Before, but what's unusual to me is the response from most of our colleagues is not the Isaac Hayes hypnobirthing voice, okay? <laughs> it is It is, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And you know it's nervousness, it's anxiety, yeah. it's, it's like, like shrill and it's alarming. Like, and I, I, how fast can I get that baby in the bassinet so I don't have to be stressed anymore? That's well, what. Go al- ahead. Also, you're getting you're getting pressure from from the hospital administrators and such. I assume, and maybe even from your colleagues. Well, that right? used, how do you that deal used, with that? That used to be a bigger problem. Okay, um, they're used to you by now. That used, to, yeah, uh-huh. I think that's happening. And, uh-huh. and um, good. Yeah, they're 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 starting to become familiar with the fact that I practice a little bit differently, and mm-hmm. um, and also it depends on good outcomes. You know, they will they will leave you along uh, they will leave you alone as long as you continue to have good outcomes. Which you well, have, that didn't happen I to assume. me. <laughs> that didn't happen to me. I had good outcomes, and they still didn't leave me alone. Yeah. Well, in other hospitals, it went that way, and you know, other hospitals. Um, right. Yeah, we've talked about we've yeah. talked about this many times, you and I. So let me let me get back. To, Excuse me. Let me get back to the main question that gets me. That I hope that our listeners by now have sort of interested curiosity on is: you trained at USC, yeah? Okay. Why? What made you, you as opposed to 
what I would say 95% of your colleagues are, which is one, they don't practice obstetrics anymore, that you still wanted to, and two, that they would have looked at all these things and they would have seen the apple cart tipping over as opposed to the individual things that each one of them by themselves was something that you could manage. Why, why do you have a different vision? Can I ask that? Is that would be a good way to say it? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I have a little bit of insight into that. One, one thing is when I learned obstetrics at LA County USC, our obstetrics department did not have any obstetricians in it. It was, it was, and I say that to people and they kind of, uh, how did that work? It was, it was all MFMs. There were, it was all MFMs. And, and then, and then the other, um, obstetric providers, um, were midwives and the patients that we used to take care of were extremely complex and high risk with long list of horrific, uh, life-threatening medical problems. And thinking back about my training, one of the things I remember about it is there was never really any anxiety about things. I mean, you had women that were staring death in the face, and um, nobody was losing their cool over anything. It was always these dispassionate conversations about what does the literature show, and how do we best, you know, help this woman. And it, it, it was it was a and I think, so I absorbed a lot of that, that in the face of, you know, the roof caving in, you, you, you don't lose your cool, but you turn your brain on and you, you, you try to think and analyze and figure out how best to help the person in front of you. And I think that has kind of just, that's one thing that's carried through my practice. I was very surprised when I left the university and started working with um, community obstetricians. One of the things I very often find there's a very, very heavy emotional component to the decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the things that make them anxious, uncomfortable, scared, things that, where do you find that in the medical journal? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it, and, and yet it, it, it influences care to a very de- um, great degree. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, <clears throat> were, the, were the other people that trained in your program, are they all out doing what you're doing right now? I don't think so. I don't I mean, think so either. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. a great um, question, though. Well, I'll tell you. Um, I one so of we my sure use you no know, one of my colleagues uh, was was featured in some um, Facebook posts from Northern California recently about uh, doing some really out of the box kind of um, care, really focusing on informed consent. Um, so that's somebody who came from my program. Um, on the other hand, I've also heard anecdotes about other providers who've kind of gone the other direction and you know, have this kind of very fear-based. I, I remember one of them saying actually to a, a friend of our family that I'm just not comfortable delivering an eight-pound baby to a first-time mom. Then you should change your job. That's what I say. Yeah, well, but they're not going to. They're right? not going to, and and so you know, there. I I think. Well, I think there's. I think a lot of them, especially if if you join a group of other MFMs who don't think like you, as you know, then you 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 do have to conform. Yeah. Or you're going to get eventually pushed out. This is what happens. You know, it's why there are groups around town that would love to back a midwife, and take their transports, but other members of their group uh, absolutely forbid won't it. Let and they won't let them do it. Yeah. So I think that the same thing happens, but I just think it's remarkable, and I think that this, 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 these babies and this couple have a story to tell that is uniquely Los Angeles and Chavira, you know, with 
our team thrown in, you know, in the early part of it, the fact that we, we were allowed, we, we, we didn't allow her, but we accepted the fact that she could do this, that we weren't afraid, you know, of the baby's being small and that, uh, uh, we let her labor. We let her have ruptured membranes for a really long time. And the only reason we decided to transport was sort of a, 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 a collaborative decision with informed consent about, well, if we wait longer, you might pick up, but also you might spike a fever or whatever. And then if we go in, the chances of you having a successful vaginal birth are going to be diminished. And so we came to this compromise. And, and uh, I just, you know, I wanted you to bring you on for a long time because we, you and I talk all the time. And yeah, I'm actually excited. I finally made it to Dr. Stu's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> number Glad one, I was number here 148. For it. <laughs> it took 148 yeah. podcasts to finally get him on board here. Uh, but so my question also for you would be would be what's uh, what I know you probably can't reveal a lot of stuff, but I know you're on maternity leave or paternity leave right now. What uh, what is your future plans like? Uh, are you going to take your skills and keep them in restricted places like hospitals? Are you going to ever consider going out of the hospital? Are you going to try to make changes within the system? Uh, I know we've talked about that before. That was sort of one of the things that was driving you to do what you're doing now. I think you took a new position now as chief of gynecology someplace, if that's public knowledge. If not, we'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so I, I don't I don't know. It's um, it, This is always kind of a work in progress, and um, things are always kind of in flux. I definitely have uh, a lot of interest in home birth, and you know we've always talked about this over the years. I've had a hard time fitting it into the schedule. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. fit into the schedule. I, um, <laughs> I, um, and and some people, you know, just to to be to be blunt about it, uh, in in recent months, my work week has ranged from eighty to one hundred twenty hours a week. So, it's I mean, it's a lot of hours. Yeah, it's hard to fit extra stuff in, um, but. You know, the whole home birth thing, you know, um, I'm very drawn to it because I feel like, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm just a person who likes to have as broad and expansive uh, a knowledge set as possible. And for most of my life, that's been dedicated to studying sort of disease and abnormal pregnancy and abnormal labor. And, um, you know, I've realized how much there is to know about normal birth and normal labor and then it's kind of very you know interested in sort of you know learning all that you have, to, un- you have to unlearn a lot of what yeah, you've learned you absolutely do. now you and i have spoken together at breach conferences we've spoken at VBAC uh, events and stuff like that um we 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 think a lot alike in that if you had a chance in the last minute or so of the podcast to speak to everybody that's listening right now and give them uh some words of wisdom that would be coming from your experience. I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit. Uh, take, nah. a, take a minute <laughs> and just tell, tell the listeners or tell people wh- wh- how the, wh- what, what they should think about, uh, about childbirth and uh, from your perspective and all your experience. Yeah, I think um, that we, you know, in, the, in this country, most of childbirth happens in the hospital. And the... the it, the the bulk of providers are obstetricians, and the thing about obstetricians is we're we're trained in this pathology based model, and so in some ways pregnancy is almost viewed as inherently a pathologic process, or if it hasn't happened yet, it will soon, and and I and I think that that conception of pregnancy and childbirth has actually been 
distributed to the masses. So that's the way the public views it as well. And I think we need get we need to get back to um, a, a more uh, woman centered or midwifery centered model where birth is just viewed as natural and normal and and they're really the exceptions where problems happen and then that's where the obstetrician comes Yay. into play from your from your lips to god's ears okay <laughs> i'm I mean, cheering right because that yeah this is this has been great and i and i think we're probably going to get a lot of emails on this uh, people are going to tell us their stories want you back and stuff like that they're going to well not only are they going to want you back they're going to want to know how do they move to los angeles for the last month of their pregnancy so they can have the option of either having a home birth with their twins or breaches or having a hospital birth with their breaches because so many communities in this country do not have an option of a of a dr stew or a doctor dr chavira and uh we're grateful for you for everything that you did for this couple and for all the other transports that you've taken from us in the, in the years and it's really great to have have you on board so thank you for being here well it's all been a pleasure everything you've mentioned bliss anything you want to say um, I loved seeing you. I was thinking about the home births that we did together. We have done a few home births together, and um, I love having you as a person we can transport to, but I also think you would really love the life of being a home birth doctor. So I'm just <laughs> going to put that in there. From your again. lips to God's ears, too. All right. <laughs> anyway, so thank you guys for listening. We, we really appreciate that, that you have lots of podcasts to listen to and lots of other things to do. So taking the time out of your day to spend an hour with us, is uh, we feel blessed. So on behalf of my pal Bliss and my good pal, Dr. Chavira, all right, we want to thank you for listening to podcast number 148. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.